How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello! It is the final episode of Joe Black Meets for Series 1. Do we say series or season? We say series, I think, for these things. I don't bloody know. Um, in this finale, I am absolutely overjoyed to be joined by author Daniel Handler, a.k.a. Lemony Snicket. This was an absolute dream come true. A huge thank you to their assistant, Susie, for making this happen. Um... Yes, absolutely uh, overjoyed that this was this was actually a thing. Um, what else do I need to say? Ah, yes. Uh, at the beginning of the interview, um, well, they're talking about how much they love Prince. Because uh, this was done over Zoom. There's a lag for a moment. Don't think it's a corrupted file or things are wrong with you. It's only briefly at the beginning. And, and then after that, it's all smooth technological sailing. Sailing? Yes. Smooth technological sailing. Um, one last thing. And for the final time, uh, at the point of recording this, there are no sponsors for this podcast. If you would like to support me in some way, please buy a print, a T-shirt. Uh, and come see me on tour across the UK and Ireland this October and November. That's 2022 with my show Club Cataclysm. Uh, a cabaret celebrating the end of all we come to know. Anyway, I'm going to uh, just say thank you very much for listening. This has been an absolute joy to record. Uh, I'll lament more at the end in the outro. Um, but in the meantime, please enjoy this chat with me and the wonderful Daniel Handler. Hello, Daniel Handler, aka Lemony Snicket, aka a prime suspect in the death of Edward Gorey. Oh. You flatter me. I don't think anyone really believes that I killed him, but I wish that I did. 
Well, we can, we can all, we can dream, we can hope. Uh, but talking, yeah. I'm going to start this off on a li- nice light note. Uh, okay. Talking of death. There we when go. I, <laughs> when I told people that I was talking to you, uh, I'd say Daniel Handler, and they go, oh, and I go, Lemony Snicket. And they go, isn't he dead? Yeah, I get that a lot. How does that make you feel? <laughs> um, you know, it honestly, it is an uh, aura that I think I've carried with me for a very long time. When I was, let's see how old I must have been, 23, it was my five-year high school reunion, which is ridiculous, five years. No one's done anything in five years. You're at your maximum insecurity, and then you have to go see these people you were with. And when I walked in, this girl I knew a little bit was so shocked she began to cry. And she said, I thought you were dead. And in fact, (laughs) several people had heard I was dead, but no one close to me. And so they were dealing with that thing where you mourn someone you kind of know, you know, which is like not, not that long. You're not that sad. You say, oh, really? Oh, gosh. Well, <laughs> I'll, I'll have the chicken. Yeah, I'll have the chicken. Um, so, yeah. So my whole life, people have heard that I'm dead. And then one day it'll be true. Oh, uh, well, I didn't realize this was a sad occasion. <laughs> You're just laying out all of the flattery right away, which yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm going for it. Um, I, no, that's, I respond that's, to that very well. That's a um, it's uh, just continuously be people thinking you're dead or that you're not real is another thing. But then that one yeah. just confuses me because it's like, well, if the person isn't real, then how do these things exist? Right, but people don't think about it. Don't you they, think? They don't, I mean, people just think, oh, look, a thing, MMA, <laughs> and they have it. They go, well, this <laughs> just why, appeared. Yeah, that's why meeting authors is almost always disappointing, because there's nothing... It isn't like uh, meeting the person who made a stained glass window, and it turns out it's a long, complicated process that maybe is interesting to somebody, not me, but maybe interesting to somebody. But with a writer... The story is always the same. How did you uh, How did you make that book? Oh, you know, I had an idea and then I wrote it down. That's the story. It's never interesting. <laughs> well, it's funny that you went with stained glass window because I was thinking sort of music uh, and and kind of musical artists have that thing, but like kind of meeting them is is like a real uh, thing. And authors, I, I I was thinking about this today. Do you get recognized much in the street or is it a case that you're at a book reading and then someone announces you and you walk out and they go oh there he is like they don't necessarily have a face to the work yeah they don't necessarily i do i grew up in san francisco um and i live here now and so um when i'm recognized i'm occasionally recognized here but it's like a 50 50 chance if it's um oh yeah you went to school with my brother I remember you, <laughs> or like, oh goodness, look at here you are. Um, so I've often said, I, what how I feel in San Francisco is like I'm the local weatherman on TV. I so sometimes I'll walk in and people will say like, oh yeah, and then they're like, eh, anyway. <laughs> That's the yeah. thing with kind of kind of locals. I live uh, very near to Nick Cave, um, is one of one of my local people. And you kind of see him around, and everyone knows locally. Like, don't, don't, you don't bother Nick Cave. He lives here. Right. You just let him be. So we'll sort of go into a cafe, and people go, eh. yeah, right. <laughs> that, that's, that's End of story. Of yeah. 
Um, when I lived in New York for a few years, and when I first moved to New York, uh, like the first walk that I took outside my apartment, we had this crummy apartment, and we needed everything. So we would just walk every day because there wasn't a single thing we didn't need. Oh, look, a broom, take that. And so I was walking by myself and I thought, look, here I am. I live in New York now. This is amazing. I wonder if I'll see someone. And there across the street, I saw Wallace Shawn. And I was like, I wonder what the etiquette is. Do you say hello to him? I know him from The Princess Bride and he's like kind of this intellectual writer. Should I say something? Should I not say something? I don't know. And I got closer and closer to him. And when I got quite close, I realized that it was not Wallace Shawn. It was an old Chinese woman. Um, <laughs> I realized that the etiquette there was not to say anything. No, yeah, I, I think she might have been a bit confused. Uh, when I was in New York, yeah. I saw Adam Sandler. So Excuse a... me, you aren't Wallace Shawn. <laughs> I just love to say that. You aren't Wallace Shawn. You could say this and to... She would have to... said, no, I'm not. Or or perhaps almost anyone. Yeah, uh, yeah most people are not. <laughs> Apart from one. Almost everyone is not Wallace Shawn. Yeah. Uh, and but, you could yeah. probably say it to him. <laughs> yeah. This is Sorry, this you is met Adam the... Sandler. Moving oh, on. I didn't meet Adam Sandler. I saw him he was eating something and walking along. I just and it was I was in New York and was like, "Oh, there's Adam Sandler." It's yeah. not very often that happens to me. It's not happened no. since. <laughs> but uh, um, it, it, no, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's a strange world we live in now. Because there's because the number of famous people has both increased and dis decreased, and so then there's more and more people that you see and you say, "Oh, hmm. yeah, it's just <laughs> not a very thrilling thing to happen." There, there was that there was that year where all all the celebrities seemed to die, wasn't there? What yeah, was uh, I don't know. I mean, it was David Bowie and Prince. It was that year, right? Is that that was the they were at the, they were at the beginning, and then eventually I think it was Carrie Fisher, then Debbie Reynolds, and then just one by one, yeah, just all picked off. Yeah, we've spoken about death quite a lot already. Yeah, well, I enjoy speaking about it. I felt <laughs> in that case that time, for me, it felt like when all the interesting people start to leave a party and you think, what do they know that I don't know? They're going someplace <laughs> better. Where are they going? That's what it felt like. David Bowie left and then Prince left. And I thought, what's, where are we? Is there a, is there a, a lounge where everyone's going? Where are we going? I want to be there. <laughs> uh, I feel very lonely to be on the planet without Prince. That's how it felt. Were you a big Prince fan? Ah, I am a big Prince fan. He was so important to me when I was young, and then he's just stayed with me. That um, everything about him—I mean, the the all the gender play and all the sexuality that was like very forthright, but also very convoluted—and then just as an artist, the way he—you could tell—he never knew what he was doing. He was always just trying it. He would always just do something. Maybe it was hideous and maybe it was beautiful, but he always he never stopped being a, a complete freak. It was uh that's really inspiring to me. He, I think and I saw him play uh, a very short time before he died, and he was such a freak. He came out <laughs> on stage, it was just him and a piano. He 
came out, out it was like a wizard and he played everything on the piano thing and um you could tell he was he he didn't have a, a list he was just going through it in fact had something written on the piano that were his songs and he would check them off as he played them but he wasn't <laughs> playing them in any order and he was just a madman a complete madman but so captivating and um and also he didn't look well and so then it was um, it was i don't think it was even a week afterwards that he was dead it was really shocking and sad i miss him i miss him I, on the planet i think he's he's one of the last great music eccentrics because you know that th there was a all these characters and things and and now you don't get them in kind of the same way um that he was i don't think no well, because you, I think there's still many, many wonderful eccentrics in music, but um, none of them are having 90 hit songs in a row. That's the difference, I think, is that he was a, an eccentric who was actually also mainstream. And you don't get that now. You can get, there's all kinds of wonderful weirdos, but they're being weird in a small thing that you love maybe but they're not i mean what's the last time that someone was like a big weirdo who had a like a number one song i can't think of it no i can't think of one either not for yeah. a long time for some sparks came into my head but i was like well they you know they're still going along uh, yeah but not you know <laughs> this, this i just I, that's in my head because i recently watched the documentary where seemingly everyone was in it. At one point, I looked down, I looked up, and Neil Gaiman was there. And I was like, why is Neil Gaiman in this documentary about Sparks? Um, on the, uh, on that was the one of the first records I bought with my own money. One of the first records I bought was Sparks in Outer Space. I bought it on cassette. That's the one that has cool places and uh, popularity. And I loved it. And I loved... Particularly the song Popularity, I was uh, probably 12 or 13, and it was the song about being popular, and you could tell that Sparks thought it was ridiculous to be popular. It was horrible, but the song talked about how wonderful it was, and that was like just that perfect slice of irony for when you're just beginning to be a teenager, where they're saying, isn't it wonderful? Don't you wish you were popular driving around in a car all the time? And you thought, <laughs> wait a minute. No, I don't think it. No, yeah, they're, they're magical too. In in yeah. the, I, you know, I was going to ask you about what sort of music you liked, and I we've we've got onto that very naturally because I was going on the subject of music. Of course, uh, you know, best-selling author, but do people know that you are also the accordionist in the Gothic Archies? Um, it depends who you ask, I guess. But yeah, Stephen Merritt, I would put him. He's um a complete eccentric genius. Um, I've worked with him with the Magnetic Fields and with the Gothic Archies and the Sixths and um, a bunch of other uh, projects. And he's a, a magical inspiration to be around. Um, he's someone, this happens every time. It's about to happen again because he's working on a new record. He'll send me demos for the record. And every time I listen to them and I think, nope, you, this, you're, you're way off. And then... <laughs> We get to the studio and it's because in his head, something he knew what was going to be happening in his head. And so he brings people in, everyone's doing their little bit and he's tinkering with it. And then by the end of the afternoon, 
this at the beginning of the day you thought this song is going nowhere and at the end of the afternoon you think this is the greatest song i've ever heard in the history of the world <laughs> and then you do that for like nine days in a row and then he goes how many tickers with the record and he makes it magical yeah but he was um uh i met him uh when i moved to new york and we started working together almost immediately and he was someone else super important uh to me in terms of watching the way he made things and the way he incorporated all kinds of happy accidents and sudden goofs into a vision that he was um he wasn't afraid to make a plan and then he wasn't afraid to completely abandon it mm -hmm. and uh he's super inspiring to work with and i love watching him work with other people who fall under the spell because he's particularly upsetting at first to sound engineers because he'll say, can you put the microphone over there? And they'll say, but then you're only going to hear the rustling of the organ. You're not, you're, you'll hardly hear the notes. You'll just hear the rustle. And he says, uh-huh. And then they do it. <laughs> and they, and they, they're so upset. And then two days later, they're like, I found a broken rubber thing on the side of the road. And I thought you'd want this hanging in front of the mic. He says, oh, perfect. You watch them become little Stephen Merritt's when he works with them. It's really magical. That does sound amazing. I So I'm a, I'm a big Tom Waits fan. And um, like all sensible people. Exactly. And it's yeah. uh, th that, that sort of uh, process you were talking about. I imagine it's very similar to to him as well and that's you there's certain artists and you can just tell and there's the reasons why you're drawn to them that they're clearly passionate about something it's i mean, I mean i'm not particularly into pop music but even sometimes in that there's just you could there's doesn't it's not even glaringly obvious there's just like something about it that you think yes they they care yeah. they've been involved and uh, it's just what was so... the first what was your first experience with Tom Waits like what was the first song that you heard do you know a uh, little drop of poison mm. uh, which is I have a weird one I was thinking about this with Nick Cave as well because the first Nick Cave song I heard was um, Curse of Millhaven and for both Tom and Nick there who are two of my favorites that those songs are not necessarily indicative of what they do as a whole yeah um, but they were really were they, big gateways. Did you hear them both through the movies? Is that how? So Little Drop of Poison was on End of Violence, right? Do I have that uh, right? So mine's embarrassing how I heard Little Drop of Poison. <laughs> uh, so it's the Shrek 2 soundtrack. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, was, uh, that was that. And then Curse of Millhaven. <laughs> I can't remember um, how I discovered that. There's lots, like, sometimes when I think back to how I discovered something. I was like, it's not necessarily the, the most romanticized ideal way in the case of Shrek 2 for Tom Waits. Um, but, uh, you know, they, they serve their purpose in, um, in, in becoming part of your, your second. In, in fact, there's, this yeah. is and I think that's essential. I think like the fact that you heard that on Shrek 2 is perfect to me mm -hmm. because if you're already cool, if you're already steeped in wonderful culture because you're privileged enough to live someplace or be raised by people or otherwise be in an atmosphere where that's happening, good for you. But for every person out disconnected from everything that they ought to be connected to, that's what that's how you sneak these things into mainstream culture. Somebody mm -hmm. thought, let's just put a little Tom Waits here in Shrek 2. <laughs> 
and you heard it and look at you now you know and i just think and i think those those moments are just absolutely magical and um i mean i lived in san francisco and so it was easier in some ways to access that kind of culture i remember that i read about tom waits i read an article about him and there was a photograph of him and there was a couple of members of his band behind him it was like a concert photograph and, and his band members were wearing fezes and i thought i gotta i gotta hear this guy uh-huh. and i walked into a record store and i bought frank's wild ears on cassette I didn't know anything about it except I just read about Tom Waits. I went to the W's. There it was. I bought it. And um, I was driving my father's car and I put the cassette in. I have a sense memory of leaving the street and and pulling into Geary Boulevard, this big, ugly street in San Francisco, and hearing the very beginning of Hang On St. Christopher, the very beginning of that record, and thinking... I'm going to buy all of the records that this mm-hmm. person, you know, by 20 seconds in, I thought this is for the rest of my life. I'm only going to listen to Tom Waits. <laughs> I, I, those, those moments of like electricity hitting with, yeah. with, with things. And in fact, the, this one is related to, uh, to you. Um, uh, there's not lots related to you. And that's, I, I will delve into this as this goes on. So as a teenager, I was always very into sort of heavy, gothy metley type stuff but there was a theatricality uh that i also love so like musicals and things and i love the dresden dolls and i went to see the dresden dolls when i was 16 years old um so this was uh 16 years ago and their support band um there was is a band called devotchka oh yeah um, who you are familiar with, uh, Nick Curata, yeah. who did the soundtrack for uh, the series Unfortunate Events Netflix yes. series. And I remember I was watching them play and they kicked into a song, which is for some reason now not available online anymore, called Such a Lovely Thing. And I, it burnt into my mind that I'd gone to see the Dresden Dolls. I knew I liked this cabaret rock and roll thing. And he had a bottle of wine. And he finished the bottle of wine, and then there was this going, and he went, go! And then it just kicked into this sort of, klez- like, really heavy klezmer right. song. And they were all bouncing up and down. And I just, 16-year-old me was like, okay, no, this is what I like. And from then on, there's those particular, like, kind of Balkan, klezmer, um, anything that, I mean, that's they're one of the reasons I started playing accordion as well was anything that's kind of that's the only yeah. way I can describe it. It just I hear it in things and I go, Oh, oh it just it makes me sort of come alive, which is um bring it to, to you a little bit because well not a little bit entirely. Is <laughs> is uh, everything kind of surrounding series of unfortunate events, it kind of culminates my interests. So I'm very into sort of 1920s and 30s and Victoriana and uh, the sort of general styling and unpleasant things and these wild, weird, bizarre side characters and the surreal. And then the soundtrack was done by Dvochka. And there's more, which I, I want to not just skip over now. But, it, um, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld. Uh, yeah. And it just lots of... And I had a real lightning moment, again, watching when I saw the Netflix series, bit by bit, as stuff happened, I was going, ah, because it was it was popping up all these things that were my interests that were just sort of neatly wrapped in this, this yeah. one show. What I think what you're talking about is 
this certain sensibility that obviously has been so important to me. But even when you just made that, the sound of like, it's that I, in my mind, I put it with like Eastern European literature yeah, and um, the Jewish tradition in which I was raised, but where the, the fact that everything is a joke and everything is terrible is just bumping right up against uh-huh. one another. They never stop. The despair is always ridiculous and the ridiculous things always bring you despair. And I mean, the Dresden Dolls brought that in space. Devotchka does that, right? There's something, you know it's theatrical, but it, it doesn't feel phony. It feels mm-hmm. genuine, even if it, in its flounciness. And similarly, you know, when... Um, I don't know what, what, when Nick Cave sings from her to eternity, you get that it's a, that's a joke, right? It's a pun on like a corny movie, but then also there's this, like, I am thinking about her for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. That is genuine. And I think that that's, uh, that's, I think what that sensibility does. And yeah. of course it was really fun when making a Netflix show <laughs> to say like, okay, who, who gets that? We just can't get some songwriter. We got to get someone who's in there talking of despair and giggling the whole Did, time. Was, was that your idea to get Devochka? Uh I think it was Barry's idea. I think it was Mr. Sonnenfeld's idea. But um, but I remember that Netflix was like, we have a bunch of guys who write music. Just <laughs> those guys, you know, and we were like, it's not as no, we gotta go over here. And um, and then it makes me happy because it makes me think someone is lis- someone lis- learned about Dabachka from Netflix, right? The way you learned about Tom Waits from Shrek too. To try to bring that those yeah. seeds, try to spread that. That feels important to me. Yeah, that's oh, and th- it's these things are always strangely related as well. Sometimes when you find you you like something, and then you watch something else you like, but there's a connection like like this where those two things because you like them they make sense together as well and somehow they 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 become part of the same thing like one thing that did blow my mind in terms of connections was i knew that i liked say the the, the film scores of danny elfman um right. and then particularly nightmare Before christmas there was something about the sound but i didn't know why i liked the sound but i know that i like the work of bertold brecht and kurt Weil. And then I watched an interview with Danny Elfman where I said, oh, well, you know, I was listening to the soundtrack of the Three Penny Opera when I wrote this. And suddenly it goes, dum, 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 dum. And everything yeah. makes sense. What was, for your writing, well, because uh, uh, your writing with Daniel Handler is obviously very different from uh, the work with Lemony Snicket. Um, the, obviously, the Daniel Handler work is uh, more grounded in reality. Um, Usually, I guess, yeah. Yeah. And then... Uh, series of unfortunate events and and all the wrong questions um, and uh, the other um, the other poison for breakfast. There's it's not complete fantasy, but it is fantasy. Like it's not out of the realms of possibility. It is it's absurdist. What what's your kind of uh, not base, but where where does that come from for you? I mean, a, a big part of it was Edward Gorey, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I came across his works when I was young, and I didn't know, I didn't understand what they were. You know, they looked, his books look like books for young children. They look like <laughs> picture books. And you and they're the 
not only are they inappropriate in terms of kind of violence and sexuality, but their language is impenetrable. Uh, the plots make no sense. And so they're not for young children, really, in any kind of way. You know, when I was like 11, 11, 10, 11, and I couldn't understand what they were. And I also felt like they were presenting me with a world that felt like familiar to me, but I couldn't mm -hmm. quite grasp it. And that's what felt magical is all of his books where it was like the Baron like took his private yacht and circled a sinister <laughs> island. You know, and I was like, I know what that is, but I don't, oh, I don't, I can't quite figure it out. And so that feeling, I really liked that kind of the kind of vertigo that happens when you're young and you can't figure out if what you're reading or what you're experiencing is feeling so real to you but how does it fit into the the dumb reality that you're stuck in and that was what was really magical so i mean while doll does that and zilpha keatley snyder does that um just last night uh i was watching with my family the lady vanishes for the hundredth time and during this scene on the on the train, I suddenly thought, I saw this when I was young and I totally put it into all the wrong questions. And I didn't, I don't even remember till now. So literally last night I thought, oh, I ripped off the lady vanishes. Who knew? <laughs> but, the, but like the lady vanishes takes place in a made up Eastern European country that's going through some kind of revolution and there's all these spies going on, but it's there's no bit of history that's attached to anything about it. It's a made-up country, and yet it has this kind of, it feels like a, like an espionage situation that you know, that you understand. Um, and that's, I love that. And also, I don't know if you've seen Lady Vanishes or anyone who's listening has seen to it, but it opens, the very opening shot is a very clear fake landscape that might be on like someone's train set. The camera goes over a mountain and it leads to this Snowdian train station and you see a car pull up and the car, it almost like it has someone's hand on it. The car, it doesn't even look realistic. And I don't know why they made that choice. Certainly Alfred Hitchcock had access to an actual car that could pull up in front of someplace. <laughs> he didn't have to do this, but there's something, yeah, I think they had that. And so there's something, there's something so, it starts in this place that you know is imaginary and yet you also are drawn into. And that's, it's those bits of culture that it, appeal it to me most so a lot of it was similar to you was kind of Victorian and 20s and 30s and things like that but a lot of it was anything where you knew it was fake but they were telling you it was real that somehow you believed that it was real any book uh, it, that began oh I found this manuscript in a suitcase and here it is and I was like oh that's that's how to get me is this this frame that makes you know it's fake but you feel like it's real that's always passionate and beautiful to me these it's quite a it, it's a hard genre, genre to you can't summarize it like in a few words it's like no it's something that's like this or like this I think again the the, the Tom Waits thing he's got that similar sensibility of these kind of wild stories. Yeah. Um, and they don't make any sense, but you just accept them. Yeah. Um, and go, yeah, that's, yeah, no, that's right. No, that's, that, that feels correct. Cause I, uh, I, when I try to explain people my sort of taste, uh, again, I have that problem where I'm sort of going round and round and round and round. And when I find things I like, 
it, again, it's that kind of <gasps> thing. Have you, are you familiar with the work of, uh, well, Mark Gatiss, uh, from a comedic, British comedian, but he wrote um, a series of books called the Lucifer Box Novels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are one of those books for me as well, where it's that, uh, you know, it's, there's one in the 1910, then 1930s, then 1950s. I think that's the, the timeline for all three of them. <clears throat> But that had that similar kind of energy. It's an energy, isn't it? It's a vibe. Yeah, it's yeah. I think it's. Um, I mean, I love hearing about anyone's um, encounter with that culture that electrifies them, mm-hmm. right? I mean, um, I re- I have a friend who's a musician, and he likes to tell the story that he he was invited to a party where they were playing house music. And even that that phrase didn't mean anything to him at all. House music, he had no idea what it was. It was like 1988, probably. And he walked in and he heard that throb, right? That like vocal free kind of groove. And like, I can kind of take or leave that music if it's late at night and we're all dancing, great. But, um, and he heard it and that was all. And it was like, he was like, every time I'd heard disco when I was young, I liked it, but like what I liked most was this, this boom, 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 mm-hmm. boom. And to finally hear the music that was putting all that into the forefront was this electrifying moment for him. So many visual artists I know were like, I always liked drawing. And then one day I went in and I looked at Alexander Calder and I thought, oh, I know what I want to do for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I think those those moments are so important. And, um, and now with so much culture being uh, deeply accessible, I think it's so exciting to think about the ways in which that's seeping in. I mean, one of the writers on the Netflix show, uh, Joshua Conkle, he was first interested in the films of John Waters when he was really mm-hmm. young. And it was it was the era of like blockbuster video. And he lived in uh, Washington state and he would like call the blockbusters to find out if they had these movies that he'd like read about, but he couldn't mm-hmm. get his hands on. I remember he always said, I didn't come out as gay to my mother for a long time. And she was like, yeah, I drove you all around the state picking <laughs> up John Waters movies. Like, you didn't have to come out to me. <laughs> you really <laughs> that, wanted Pink Flamingos. like Yeah, that just... yeah. right. Like, And also, if you're the mom who will drive your kid two hours to pick up a blockbuster VHS copy of Pink Flamingos, like, you already know your kid is gay and you're already loving for it. And so that's I think a good was... parent. Oh, for sure. The best. But um, but I love thinking about that, that he too, he was he was so young. I don't think it meant something about his sexual identity. It meant something about there's something going on here, the homemadeness and the queerness of it and the, the melodrama of it and the camp of it that he just found. And I love like anytime I hear a story where someone just says like, this is I knew what I wanted to do. Even if I didn't know the details, I didn't know, oh, I'm going to be a writer for TV. He just knew this is this is what I want. I want this thing here. That's, oh, this is, I, I love that this is already just, it's just talking about inspiration and, 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 and that spark of, because I've, you know, I spoke to so many people across this and it's so interesting to hear uh, everyone's different kind of, wells of where they 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 get everything from and i just on on the subject of finding something that uh sparks that i was i was never particularly an avid reader as a as a kid because i couldn't find what i enjoyed 
Uh, yeah. You know, I read the the that wizard woman's books. We shan't mention her name. Uh, you know. Yeah. So um, and then I found series unfortunate events, and I was, you know, uh, how old would I have been? So they were nineteen ninety nine. That's the first one came out in ninety nine. Yes. Yeah. So I would have been ten or eleven. Yeah, ten or eleven. Um, and I was always quite a gothic child. Despite, you know, <laughs> maybe not uh, outwardly displaying You shock it. me, Joe Black. <laughs> you shock me. <laughs> um, and, and, and reading those, I was suddenly like, wow, this makes sense. And it's you, you get these pictures of, I mean, obviously there are illustrations uh, for it. But that was one of the things that really made sense for me. And again, a lot of people attribute the wizard woman to their uh, early reading but uh, sure. i attribute my uh, early reading to your work in fact well thank you thank you i like hearing that um it's and, and i again, know oh. yeah no no carry on speaking sorry I well i just think um the main delight in the path that i've gone on is I remember what certain books meant to me mm -hmm. um, and the experience of reading them, which you, which you can't have again as an adult, you know, you're reading a book and you're thinking about it while you're not reading. And you're having that kind of like, I wish I were the hero or the hero had a friend who was me or that, I, you know, I'm kind of in the story, but I'm also just reading it and appreciating it. And that, that kind of space, that liminal space that you can, live in when you're reading a book as a child. And so to think that I get to share that space mm -hmm. with young people is really powerful to me. And 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 to create that space. It, you're not just sharing it, you are you're you're building it. Yeah, well it was built for me. So then I build it mm -hmm. for the next one. You know, I it, uh, um Edward Gorey made it for me, Raul Dahl made it for me, Zilpa Keatley Snyder made it for me. You know, when I was older to read like Kafka and Bulgakov and Rachel Ingalls and Mary Butts, all these authors who were doing really strange and wondrous things, like they built it for me. So then I, you know, I want it to be good. I want, I want to make something so that young people can find it. And I think also it, it's quite fortunate in the, the kind of times we're living in that you, you were able to see your work come to life uh, in other mediums, which is, I think Edward Gorey, so the, are you familiar with the Tiger Lilies? Yeah. Of course. Yeah, of course. I, I didn't want to assume, but I also assumed. <laughs> um, so they, um, I think Edward Gorey passed away before they finished their uh, Gorey End album, yeah. which was a conjunction with him where he sent them the stories and they made things. So he never got to see that. I mean, obviously they had the Dracula um, stage show. I've got the little puppet, right. not puppet, little oh, pop-up yeah. theater. I bought it for my boyfriend for his birthday. The uh, It's like a book and then you it's got a full little paper. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. Work. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Um, and we, we had it up and then we got cats and we were like, okay, we're going to put this away for a, <laughs> until we, we've got room for a, a proper sort of uh, cloche, cloche dome. Right. Um, but yeah, seeing your work kind of come to life, because I have very, really vivid memories of um, reading the hospital book uh, and being almost very scared of Esme Squalor. Yeah. Um, uh, and then seeing there were so many moments that were like kind of Im implanted in my head that watching them come to life on a, a show, it was the, the click of the heels when that with the knives yeah that was the, the i she 
I think she's one of my very favorite characters in literature. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I've got this thing for bizarre side characters. I never root for for the the main people necessarily. Um, I've always I always enjoy the side ones. And post when I finished, uh, sorry, I've gone off on it. This is all tangents, by the way. All of these things. That's all time. Um, when I came uh, back off uh, Drag Race UK, the you sort of get circled by agents and all of that sort of thing i'm sure and and how i kind of realized whether or not people got me was i said to, i'd say to people oh i'd like to do some musicals and some stage work and there were these people that were they were going okay well you know there's uh the chicago there's you know right. and but they they were and they kept suggesting very much main characters for everything and i would go no 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 i maybe more sort of uh um Fraulein Blucher from Young Frankenstein or <laughs> Velma von Tussel and, and these sort of strange <laughs> side characters. And then they'd go, yeah, 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 yeah. So, and then bring it back to, because right. they, they, weren't, they weren't used to working with someone that takes joy in the kind of absurd other character. Yeah. And that's how I worked out who was good to work with for me. And I think what particularly Serious Unfortunate Events does I mean, I've just also finished uh, Poison for Breakfast. Is along the way you meet these strange characters that their their full being is explained um, pretty pretty immediately. You you know what they're about, any quirks, um, nothing is a surprise later, except from Esme who turns out to be evil. Um, Encounter of Love's girlfriend, uh, but you you get to know these side characters so immediately and and you understand who they are so as someone that likes all these i've you know when i play games i'm never interested in the hero when i watched watched cartoons as a kid i was never interested in batman i was more interested in the joker or the scarecrow yeah uh these sort of pop-up things and i think that's what uh you do so beautifully is construct these very complete people that pop up and you're like oh i understand what they're doing thank um, you is, is i that... love that you said frau blucher that makes me so happy because that's I, I always think when esme squalor turns out to be count olaf's girlfriend that she's she's stealing the line <laughs> from young practice he was <laughs> he, my, my, my boyfriend <laughs> she she has my my favorite line uh frau blucher no, um, not her. Sorry, uh, but it's re- regarding her. It's when they're they're sort of investigating. They're following the sound, and they pick up the violin and they go, <gasps> "It's still warm." Still warm. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's again. He's very absurd as Mel Brooks. Yeah, and, and also he understood that everything terrifying is hilarious and vice versa. Right, <laughs> and so that's why he was able to make you know a musical about Nazis. And uh, um, a movie about Frankenstein that was still ridiculous, but not a not a one joke tedious thing that mm-hmm. you know gets boring in forty five seconds. Yeah, he's so uh, good at that. The uh, another person who's very very good at uh, these that is uh, Mr. Barry Sonnenfeld. Yes. Who uh, for listeners uh, did well executive producer of uh, the series Unfortunate Events Netflix series. But um, was executive producers correct? Yeah, he directed and a director. bunch of the episodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, I mean, th- I would say the two things that he's really marvelous at um, 
One is uh, cinematography. Um, he started out as he was he well, uh, shot I, some of the Coen Brothers movies at the beginning. I uh, I read his autobiography recently, oh, very and I like I, I, yeah, and I like that you said, oh, you started out doing the Coen Brothers. Well, actually, Barry Sonnefeld started out doing pornography. Pornography, <laughs> but still interested in the camera, not interested yeah, in the story. Pornography so, to the Adams family. Yeah. Well, and then there was an Adam's Family porn film. It's all very complicated. But um, he, like the the um, the hat rolling across the landscape in Miller's Crossing, where he, which was actually on a uh, on a piece of uh, fishing line, and all these nails were there to catch it at just the right angles so they could do it. Um, he's always interested in those kinds of tricks, and. That, and that means that all the camera people are really excited to work with him because he says, oh, we're going to, you know, the camera's going to go all the way down here or we're going to come around the corner and you, the actress is going to be dangling from the rock that we're going to use all these safety ropes that we'll edit out later. He loves that. And then the other thing is casting. He has a, a crystal clear memory for a gazillion actors and not just famous actors, but a tiny little bit parts and things like that so he finds all all these people he figures out how to put them all together and that's something that i'm not good at when everybody says like who should be cast in your films all i do is that i end up listing dead actors for a long time ago you know (laughs) james mason would be amazing and they're like he's dead i'm like i know i know but like just let's think about it for a while james mason um and he remembers who's alive which is really helpful and then i don't have much of a visual um imagination uh i'm married to an illustrator so i'm always really grateful that i have someone in my house who's much more visual than i am um but uh mr sonnefeld always he just he knew when it needed to be a long tracking shot he knew when he needed to jolt right in he does all this great stuff and i think that that's made his movies so much fun i mean he was made the the adams family movies and the um the Men in Black movies, and um, he he. But the reason why those movies are um, stick with us for so long because they could just be like Saturday Night Live skits that go on too long, but instead he constructs them with this care that he learned from um, working with cameras first for so long. It's really really brilliant work. Yeah, he's. I, I assume you've read the call. Uh, call your mother. Yes. Uh, yes, in fact, he and I were scheduled to talk. That was the first canceled COVID event. He and I were scheduled to be on stage together to discuss that book. And uh, he, and then I just remember that was, he called me and he said, I, they're really going to cancel it. That was just like the very beginning, you know, where each cancellation felt like, okay, that seems crazy, but okay. And then, then <laughs> you're all being know, very dramatic. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Like, I get it. People get sick, but surely we're not going to like, what are we going to stop the world for a couple of years? We'll never do. Oh, we are doing that. Okay. (laughs) But uh, I mean, is that something that you thought about rescheduling or was it like, well, the book's out now? Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, it was painful because by the time it was possible to reschedule, it was, the moment was kind of lost for it. But uh, I, um but yeah but i but he's super wacky on stage he's a complete lunatic i mean he's a <laughs> well, lunatic the, of a man the the, the book so, makes this quite clear yeah oh yeah 
And I mean, you sometimes you would be in some meeting or something, you couldn't believe what was coming out of his mouth. But also, I think the way you said that he figured out who we could work with, because if he said, we're going to need to build a whole lake so that the camera can go bouncing mm -hmm. along the surface, some people would say, get out of here. And some people would say, okay, well, where do we start? We start with a hole in the ground? Is that where we start? And then he works with them. It's perfect. Yeah, it's. I think he's so brilliant. I, I'm, I'm sure you've spoken about this a million bloody times, but uh, there was, of course, a um, motion picture uh, version of series of unfortunate there events. Was? That was yeah, <laughs> which yeah. Uh, did, of course, have links to you and Mr. Barry Sonnenfeld. Yeah, and then by the we end, we were both fired from it. Yeah. <laughs> But how do you, I just, see, I don't understand it. How do you get rid of the writer of the source material? I'm, I'm saying this, but I, I'm apparently Alan Moore is not welcome anytime yeah. they adapt any of his work. They're like, he's a nuisance, we'll get rid of him. But I think yeah. Neil Gaiman's kind of proving the point that, um, and of course your Netflix series as well, because it was perfect, that having the writer there is certainly a um, a benefit. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think film is really expensive. That's, I always think, the yeah. real difference. It's tremendously expensive. You could write a description of a lake, and that doesn't cost anything. If you build a lake, that costs a great deal of money. And <laughs> the executives who are in charge of that kind of money behave the way anyone would behave if someone gave them like a suitcase with $200 million in it. And they said, I need you to walk this suitcase across town it has $200 million in it. <laughs> Don't lose any of it. In fact, it kind of needs to be $300 million by the time you get there. And so then you have to do that. And they're frantic all the time. They're really scared. They're scared of getting fired. And um, they're scared of making a mistake. And you it's frustrating, for sure. It leads to many, many in arguments. Um, and uh it, it, it's you don't know the magic words to say i'm always like it's not your money what do you care it's not... <laughs> yeah they're like the company will lose so much money and i'm like they're probably gonna fire you anyway man they everybody gets yeah. fired just relax it's paramount they've got loads what's a yeah. couple of million dollars <laughs> well it's not yours they're they're not gonna if they lose it they don't take your child that's not how it works they just fire you you'll be fine you don't really have any talent, but you're, you know, you're charming. It'll be fine. <laughs> I mean, you're not that charming, but you'll, you know what? It'll probably be fine. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's what, and so that's why they fire, you know, that's why they fire people. It's why they cancel things. That's why they freak out. Um, the Netflix series uh, as has one fewer episode than you would think. Every book has two episodes to it, except for one book that has one episode to it. Yeah. And it's for precisely that reason. They said, it's it's crazy. We can't we can't do it. We can't afford. And I said, <laughs> you can't afford twenty six. You can only afford twenty five. Who says that about anything? <laughs> if you're at the grocery store and you buy lemons, I can only buy twenty five. I can't possibly buy twenty six. Right? No one says that about anything about a car. If you say I can only afford twenty five automobiles, I can't possibly afford twenty six. You're lying. Yeah, that's if you're if you're <laughs> going to that to that point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, just yeah. get that. Get the other one. Um, right, exactly. Or like the 26th I... drink. Right? <laughs> if you're at the bar and you're like, oh, I've had 25. I couldn't possibly have any more. Oh, really? Well, that, well, that <laughs> one could be, the if you're still able to say, oh, I've had 25 drinks, um, I think maybe the 26th 
could send you over the edge in terms of uh no animation. i don't think so i think it's i think it's too late for you you're gone <laughs> 25 no, I, come on i don't I, I mean i don't think the, the i don't think the series suffered for for, for one less, as as a viewer no i um, mean no it's um it's but it's a but it's a constant argument and the reason why it's a constant argument is that it's expensive and um it's you know it's probably unless you're talking about certain ridiculous items it's the most expensive art form in general is to make mm-hmm. is to film something and some things that uh mr sonnenfeld got netflix to do won't be done again for a long time (laughs) town block made you know he all this stuff was built there was very little um cgi stuff very little stuff that was on location Uh, almost everything was built and uh that was an incredible effort and uh uh barry sonnenfeld has the skill to talk to those money people way better than i do because I'm kind of like, oh, what do you, what do you care? I don't. I'm like, <laughs> it's not your money. Yeah. What is it? <laughs> the uh, in 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 that kind of like links between things. You're talking about the, the sort of stuff being built. Uh, built is uh, Bo Welch, who did mm-hmm. the production design. My so my yeah. very favorite film of all time is Batman Returns. Who uh, Bo Welch was the um, production designer on that. Yeah. And again, it's all these these sort of related things. And I I the only way I can describe it is that I kind of got almost annoyed at how perfect everything was because the people involved were just all these people from all these things that I really enjoy suddenly had uh, appeared and then Catherine O'Hara is an optometrist and I'm like, oh, I love that woman. <laughs> um, the, uh, you mentioned casting with Barry. Yeah. Um, the, I, the, I mean, the casting, you know, because I don't know who else went for anything, um, but it is perfect. I'm, again, particularly smitten with uh, Lucy Punch's Esme Squalor. Yeah, she did a um, fantastic job. And that is the the one that's kind of embedded in my mind now that um my boyfriend got me into audiobooks. Mm. Um which was never never my thing and then they were really into it. So we listened to them overnight and I was listening to the Erzatz Elevator and Tim Curry, of course, yeah. uh, reading it. And then hearing Tim Curry do Esme Squalor was almost jarring for me because in my head it is only now Lucy Punch <laughs> that Tim Curry doing an American accent as as yeah. I was like oh, just... but no she's english she's english um did, with the, with the audiobooks did you uh did you pick tim curry or no the publisher found him and then um he did a few and then the publisher said we really want you to do it and i said why and they said no 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 it'll be it'll be great and because I'm pretty good at a reading or something, which is not at all the same skill mm-hmm. as doing an audiobook. Um, it reminds me of like, oh, you should be a chef. And it's like, no, I made you that sandwich. A chef <laughs> has to make that sandwich 75 times in a row. I made it once. And um, and so I did a couple and it was really difficult. I never want to do it again. And so then they, uh, so we begged Tim Curry to come back and he came back. Um, I'm really, um, uh, it was, I mean, of course, as a as a child uh, at a, and a young and Tim Curry was like the dark, campy master of all, mm-hmm. and so I couldn't believe that he was um, that he got to do it. Yeah, it was, was that a nice was that a nice full circle? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, it was beautiful to see, and it was. I mean, I had a lot of that early in my career especially because a bunch of children's authors that I admired when I was a child were still alive 
And mm-hmm. so when I was first coming out, I would go to some festival and there would be some author I had read to tatters when I was nine. And they would say, oh, I just read your new book and I like it. And I felt like, oh my God, I have to go back in time <laughs> and talk to myself. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, I love that kind of full circle. It's really, it's really fun. And it makes you- me happy now. Well, it makes me happy now. Like we're, I'm much older than you. I'm 109 years old and you're wh- whatever you are, 22. And <laughs> Th- 32. Um, well, it's, it's the same. Uh, but, I, <laughs> but um, you know, you were young when I was first doing it. And I like seeing that people who read me when they were young are growing up to be their, like, dark and fabulous selves. What could that be? <laughs> Just looking going, yeah, you're getting old. I thought you were going to say, I like the people that read me when they were young are now older, too. <laughs> <laughs> we're all going down. There's nothing. We don't, we don't have to worry about that. <laughs> uh, you, you, you were talking about other writers. I've got this. I read online, and I don't know if I've imagined this. Did you play accordion at Neil Gaiman's wedding? I did. I did. Uh, Mr. Gaiman is a friend of mine. He was very generous to me when I was uh, starting out, and he is a pal. Uh, and uh, he got married uh, pretty impulsively. I mean, um, they were had been a couple already, but the marriage was itself a, a, was Amanda. pretty impulsive. Amanda. Yeah. Uh, and they, uh, yeah, it was, it was at a mutual friend's house and there was like 10 of us there. Um, I remember I was also in charge of bringing the liquor and I had no idea how many people were <laughs> going to be there. And so I brought liquor. It would have killed us all had we brought, I bought oodles of liquor and um, I did, I played accordion, but really what happened was that after the wedding, because there were so few of us and because we all had that kind of, sensibility we would just i mean neil would kind of uh narrate a story he was making up and and a few of us who were musicians would kind of pound away in the background and then someone would say wait a minute that's like you just played a riff that sounds like hallelujah and they'd be like oh that's the greatest song of all so then we would all sing hallelujah it was a really <laughs> wonderful kind of dark uh crazy evening um yeah that was a magical time that sounds amazing. I, I've got this in my head that um, I, it, I shall re- tell you my list of people that in my head, I'm like, right, these these authors must all know each other. And you and Neil Gaiman. But I also who I also imagine is not at the wedding necessarily, but at some sort of secret meeting. Mm. Uh, so it's I'm imagining you, Neil, Stephen King and R.L. Stein. <laughs> That's just, well, just... <laughs> um, Stephen King uh, and I we've met a couple of times but we had one great conversation because we briefly shared a stalker so ah! we, so so we uh, and um, so I learned this and I I I I, I was getting there was a I don't want to go into details because it's unnerving and I don't want any listener to repeat the experience but um but I was uh, unnerved by something and uh, someone, and I learned that Stephen King had also had contact with this person. And so then I called Stephen King, but of course you can't just call Stephen King if you don't know him. So I had his office and then I felt like a crazy person because I had to say, <laughs> hello, this is my name, but this is my other name. And someone is calling, causing unpleasantness. And they said, oh yeah, 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 we'll ring you right through. And so, and it, and it turns out the person is harmless, though creepy. And so uh, I'll always share that. And then R.L. Stein is delightful. Uh, I've met him at a few uh, festivals too, and for and 
he, this is before your time because you're only 14 years old, but... Um, <laughs> I'm changing every time! Yeah, getting younger. Uh, he, before Goosebumps, he had this magazine called Dynamite Magazine. That was a 70s magazine for children. Um, I still have a couple of issues. I have an issue that uh, says, who's the who's the greatest the Beatles or the Bee Gees that was the cover story <laughs> on an issue of Dynamite magazine and um so I had read him without knowing it without because who thinks of who's behind a magazine when you're a child you just grab it and you read it so he'd been a part of my childhood um even deeper yeah he's a lovely man and um I think the it's never been exactly those people at the table but um we all get along because we all like a story you know, and so um, I, one of us, I mean, I'm, Mr. Gaiman and I are the closest uh, friends of that group, but all of us have sat around a little bit and said, you know, it's a good story, or, you know, I stole this little bit, or I just read this thing, and it's not very good, but there's this one little part that I'm going to take and turn into this thing, and to talk about the way we make stories, the way we steal from them, the way we, um change them to our own specifications um that's the that's the real secret society as far as i'm told and there's and there's many many other writers with whom i share that affinity but um when i meet a writer if they start to talk about the making of a story the architecture of it and if they're very open about who they steal from that's usually a great conversation in my mind it's the people who say steal i don't know what you mean i i have nothing <laughs> but pure imagination i think sure you do and the people who say oh, I don't really know how a story goes. I just kind of make it up. That's not how I can really get down with. But the people that can hunker down and say, oh, this happens and then this happens and then you pull it like this. I love that part. Neil Gaiman is particularly good for that because Neil takes um, mythology and gods and deities and yeah. and and gives them another life. Have you um, Have you seen The Sandman? I yeah. haven't seen the new one yet. No. Um, I'm excited to see it and I want to watch it when I have the, when I, when I'm really like on the right sofa with the right drink in my hand and my feet up. <laughs> it's, it's amazing. But Neil Gaiman keeps uh, cropping up in this podcast. You're the, the final episode, by the way. But ah. What's happened is, is Neil Gaiman has somehow been sort of dotted through without mm. actually being here. So we've, we've, we have Mason <laughs> Alexander Park who plays Desire in the Netflix series. And then yeah. we had Dawn French. Uh, who narrated the Coraline audiobook and was in the Coraline film and was married to Lenny Henry, who works with Neil Gaiman, um, and now you. And it's just sort of, just sort of, each point throughout the the, the series, he, he sort of put. I'm gonna have to ask what I did actually ask him, but he, uh, you know, he's a bit busy with Sandman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, have you? Um, I'm gonna ask. Do Do you have another appointment right now? Because that will determine whether I'm gonna ask you another question. <laughs> You can ask me. I'm, I have time to answer one more question. <laughs> right. Okay. This is something. Well. Okay. I'll, I'll make it two very quick ones. All right. The fair first enough. one is that you, you mentioned sort of we were talking about sort of sort of queerness earlier. Your a lot of your work speaks to sort of LGBTQ plus and 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 queer readers and also a lot of neurodivergent people. Sure. Um. What I mean, I guess you get that a lot, but like, why why do you think that is? Um, I mean, I think that's who I am. Yeah. I, um, uh, and I think a lot of that was growing up in the 80s in San Francisco, mm -hmm. where it was perfectly possible 
to um, explore all that in a pretty open way. And also to really see that the city that I felt at home was a city where people, I mean, people with incredibly painful stories could finally find liberation and happiness mm -hmm. and identity here. And that was spoke very powerfully to me. And, um, and it's, I think actually the one thing, one few things that I, that sometimes bothers me about getting old is like now I, I, I look like a vice presidential candidate or something. And so sometimes people will just assume, oh, he must be like entirely straight and not know about these things. And maybe he writes unusual stories, but he's clearly a very sane uh, man in a nice jacket. And um, I mean, those, uh, all those, those people are my people. And any gathering, the people who are, um, it's almost like you said, it's all, who are the, the wicked side characters at the party, mm -hmm. who are the writers who have a peculiar passion that they're putting on the page, something that they're looking askance at the world. And I think um, whether you're talking about uh, sexual identity and sexual exploration or the shape of a brain that is shaped and the, the flavor of a mind that is going in another way, you're challenging the world. You're saying, you say it's like this, but it's really like this. And I mm -hmm. think that's where that comes from for me. So yeah, it's been a, it's been, um, a delight to see that message received as it was sent out. That was a really beautiful answer. Thank, Thank you for you. that. Um, and I've asked everybody, and I would be it would be not right of me to not ask you, <clears throat> um, is there something, is there one thing that hasn't happened yet that you're like, I, I want this to happen, a dream project? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, the, my whole career path has been such a surprise. I mean, mm -hmm. into talking that, uh, what I just said, right, that like, uh, growing up in San Francisco to see um, strange queer artists in little corners making things that appeal to me, I always assumed that was the path that I was on. Mm -hmm. I always assumed I'll make some little thing, someone will like it, that will be enough. I certainly never thought, oh, and then, you know, major entertainment conglomerates will want to make it their thing. That was never part of my plan and it was never expected. And so what I like about what I'm doing is the surprise. And so I'm working on a musical now. I say this because I know you like a musical. <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> um, a musical. <laughs> so, yeah, so I'm working on a musical now with a songwriter I've wanted to work with forever and ever, Colin Malloy of the Decemberists. Um <gasps> Oh, and sorry, the, so the, the, that's been a delight. That's the dream right now is to try to finish that and get that going even further. Um, but wherever I go and whatever I turn, something surprising happens and I like that. So I'm not someone who says like, oh, if only this could happen. I more just think like, let's just go out into the world, meet the people who are interesting, take the Joe Black invitation and go to the strange gathering, see what's going on, and to see where that leads me. It's always fun. I think saying yes to things is um, powerful. Yeah, Because you really never is. know. You never know. I mean, you might go, eh, I wish I hadn't said yes. Uh, but you, it, again, it could lead to so many wonderful things. And I will, I will say, so the reason I asked, I built a 
a list of people that I wanted to talk to when I was thinking of doing a podcast, and you were top of the list. And I hadn't asked until I felt a little bit power mad because Dawn French said yes. <laughs> so I, I hadn't, I was like, it's never going to happen. They're not going to say yes. There's no point in asking. And I got the yes from Dawn French and I was like, I think it's time. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, that's why, you know, we, we reached out because I, it didn't seem possible to get Dawn and it felt even more impossible because, you know, I'd, I'd met her, um, so there was like a, I, there had been an interaction um, and just uh, the power of asking, if you don't ask, you don't get the power of asking and then saying yes. And then suddenly here we are and we've had this, this wonderful chat. Um, and it turns out everyone's, I mean, all the artists that I admire just turn out to be people. You think of yeah, them as something, but yeah, it turns out they're surprising, just, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess mean, I guess Enya lives in a castle, but most people are just normal. She does with loads of cats. Yeah, I've Good heard for that. Her. And Kate I Bush say. lives in a in a house that uh the the, the cliff face is getting ever closer. <laughs> well, you know this, there right? We, now we're just talking about death again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, death is how we began, and death is how we shall all end. Yes, indeed. Um, Daniel Handler, this has been such a pleasure. Thank Joe you so Black. much for talking what are the to likes? me. Um, and then I guess all we have to say is goodbye. Shalom, arrivederci. And that's that. That's it. We're done. Goodbye, everybody. Um, again, thank you so much for listening. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I wanted to talk to some people that inspired me and people I think are wonderful and I got to do it this was an amazing excuse um and what makes it more of an amazing excuse is that you actually all listened and tuned in and um as far as I can see very much enjoyed it hopefully this can be back at some point um and I will hope to see some of your lovely faces on tour um if you do if you do bump into me or we say hello and you've enjoyed the podcast please do tell me that's what you know selfishly it's one of the reasons i did this because i like the idea of you know because i do it and i meet people and i think oh oh, i love your podcast and it's a very because it's a an extracurricular activity um it feels lovely to know that people are enjoying it uh, and, and have enjoyed it so yes um i shall bid you all well I shall bid you all farewell until I see you on the road. And uh, I guess <laughs> all that is left to say is goodbye! <laughs> <laughs>
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.